0: The History of Literature Podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Number nine, number nine, Ninety number nine. nine, number nine,
1: number nine, number nine, number nine, number nine,
0: number number nine, number nine, number nine,
1: number nine, nine, 99, 99, 99,
2: what is the deal with all these nines? Why is nine so popular? And 99, they, I wonder, is it because they're the precursor to a round number like 100? Well, this is episode 100. We're going to find out what's on the other side. We've had our own little build up. Uh, Good luck
0: with... uh episode 100
2: and keeping mike in check <laughs> isn't that perfect good luck with episode 100 and keeping mike in check we'll see how that goes thank you very much radavatsal we're celebrating episode 100 today on the history of literature <laughs> Okay, welcome to the program. This is episode 100. We're going to have Mike Palindrome here in a few minutes with another draft, greatest books with numbers in the title. Did your favorite make the cut? We shall see. This is as good a time as any to reflect a bit on the first 100 episodes. We've come a long way, baby. <laughs> we had Shrimp Boy in one of the early episodes. Shrim- <laughs> The Trials of Shrimp Boy, that Brian Cranston vehicle. What has come of that? Mm, we may need to get reacquainted with Brian Cranston's agent to find out. Oh man, we've cleaned things up since then. A lesser podcast might have crashed and burned with Shrimp Boy. <laughs> well, we have crashed and burned many, many times. But... A lesser podcast would not have risen from the ashes, as we have again and again helped by our guests. Vu Tran has been on a couple of times. Both of those were popular. We had Professor Jim Chandler here talking about Frankenstein and beloved author Jim Shepard here not long ago to talk about Dracula. My old friend and mentor Charles Baxter was here to talk about Chekhov and some other favorite authors. Radha has been here twice. Shawnee Yang Ryan. Professor Rebecca Musbarger. We might need her to come back to talk some more about Natalia Ginsburg and fascism. I'm not going to be able to mention all of them, I don't think. Professor Andrea Zemgulis was here. Zemgulis. And Paul Pepys. And, of course, Bill Hogan, who's been on a couple of times now. A couple? Three, I think. With more on the way, hopefully. An early one I like on the New Testament as literature with Professor Kyle Kiefer. And another favorite, our episode on James Joyce with Vincent O'Neill, the actor and theater entrepreneur. That was a fun one. I know I'm leaving out some guests. Terry Hong was here to tell us about the fiction smuggled out of North Korea. Jack Wilson Jr. and Jack Wilson Jr. Jr., they were here for Thanksgiving. This is <laughs> we've had a good run of guests. All of them have really helped make the show what it is today. I think those episodes are evergreen. If you want to find them in our back catalog, it's easy enough to do, and it will help me reach my goal of a million downloads. We are well on our way. I didn't know if literature was popular enough to get us there, but apparently it is. Enough to keep going. To keep me going. And our readers have, uh, readers, I always say readers, our listeners have made the show too. The comments and emails that have helped us along the way, they're sustaining and inspiring. I'm doing this, all of this for you, dear listeners. A little bit for me, and a whole lot for you. I'm always very pleased to hear from you when something hits the right note for you. The hate mail, I can do without, I'll be honest. (laughs) I don't look forward to that. I don't take any pleasure in that. Luckily, there's not too much. And the kind emails, which vastly outweigh the hate mail, they are truly gratifying. Thank you very much for checking in, telling me how you're doing, telling me uh, things about the show, ideas for future shows. Oh, I forgot a guest. My wife's favorite episode so far, Margot Livesey. That was delightful. She has a new book out. Coming out, I just saw. I might need to have her back on the show as well, if she'll join us. Oh, and Ronica Dar, another favorite of mine. And of course, our most frequent guest, Mike Palindrome, the president himself. Mike's joining us today to talk about numbers. I've been getting emails from people who are planning to read The Magic Mountain this summer, thanks to Mike, his advocacy is unstoppable. And his enthusiasm is contagious. So, if that's you, if you're going to be reading a little Thomas Mann this summer, enjoy the book and all the others that have been recommended. That's what this is about, by the way. It's not really about me. It's about the books. These wonderful, crazy, passionate achievements from all the wild and dedicated souls who have put pen to paper. They've given us these gifts. And we, on this show, we try to tear into them like packages on Christmas morning. What did we get? That's a, that's a good metaphor. Good way of thinking about me tackling the world of literature. That's how I feel. I'm five years old. And I'm saying, oh boy, here's another colorful present. What did I get? Open it up. What did I get? Okay. Mike Palindrome.
0: Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts.
2: So we're doing this in honor of our 100th episode, and here's something interesting I thought you might be interested in. Episode 99 is a palindrome, and episode 101 will be a palindrome, and (laughs) that's not going to happen again until 999 and episode 1001, where we have two palindromes in three
3: episodes. Uh, Wow. for some strange reason that reminds me of one of my daughter's classmates has memorized pi to four hundred digits <laughs>
2: so other than your name, what is your favorite palindrome
3: um i I like the one I created, which makes no sense, but it's lid off a daffodil ooh
0: yeah, I thought <laughs> it I, makes
3: no sense
2: I think at one point when you were starting to collect palindromes, I was high on your list with uh so, cat, tacos? <laughs> yeah, that was a good one. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think mine is probably Abel was I, ere I saw Elba. Or, oh, right. Yeah. I had a book that had a, a drawing of the Garden of Eden, and Adam was saying, Madam, I'm Adam. And then uh, yeah. Eve replied, Eve. And <laughs> then the snake was there and was saying, tut tut. And I used to just, I just marveled at that page that all three of the characters were speaking in palindromes. Just blew me
3: away. Well, you know the story of how I found out my name is a palindrome, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, didn't, I thought someone wrote it on your door.
3: Well, there was a there was a girl in college who, who had taught herself to uh, speak backwards. <laughs> so, um, must have been like some odd, ot- autism spectrum, but she would speak entire sentences backwards and forwards yeah. just to show us that she could do it. And one day she said my name, she her eyes lit up and she was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs>
2: so, you know, I had a friend who uh, he one day was, um, he had this habit of whenever he would hear a sentence, he would take all the letters from the sentence and he would Alphabetize them. So if you re- if you would say some sentence to him, he could immediately say, you know, two Bs, a C, four Es, a G, an H, you know, and he would he would basically it was like he was lining all lining up all the letters and counting each of them and putting them all in alphabetical order. Oh. And so then one day he was he mentioned this to his family. And his mom said, "I do the same thing." <laughs> <laughs> oh man! You never know. Okay, so let's get to numbers. Do you have a lucky number?
3: Um, uh, I do. It's thirty-three. Oh which, which is uh, yeah, Larry Bird's t- number. No, no, no well, <laughs> it is, but it's Tony Dorsett's number. Ah, and Kareem. Oh yeah, Kareem. forgot yeah. About that.
2: Okay, so. How hard were these? We're going to be picking uh, great books with numbers in the title. So how hard were these for you to come up with? I felt like the top two were pretty unbeatable for me. It really, <laughs> they really jumped out, my top two. I thought the top two were pretty clear. But did you uh, have a hard time selecting yeah, I, your numbers?
3: I mean, I, I guess I, I overthought it a little bit. Yeah. I, I I wanted to... Come up with stuff. I, I, there were certain books I wanted to talk about, but then I was like, "Well, you know, their titles are really tangential." To mm. The fact that I want to talk about them, but then I, so I was trying to think of books where the title really had a lot of meaning. Mm. Yep. Um, and so I kind of, you know, split it in half. Like some of them, you know, don't have any relevance and some of them really do. So, but I agree with you that the first few um like I was saying in our texts earlier to this that yeah. I I'm, I'm I'm really going to try to pick the ones you want to pick. It'll be like a true sports draft where you're looking up <laughs> at the draft board and you're seeing like many of your players are there.
2: Yeah. Yeah, your text was, I'm going to quote it here. I plan on taking all of your picks, (laughs) (laughs) exclamation (laughs) mark. Okay, I'll let you take first pick and we'll see how you do.
3: Okay, so I went with Catch-22. Oh, yeah, (laughs) that was number two on my list. So, you know, I I have talked about Catch-22 in the past. It's Mm -hmm. Joseph Heller's first book. Yeah. You know, I think we, we had an episode where we talked about best first books and you yeah. mentioned that. Um, but I did uh, a little more researching about the title because I was yes. saying... Yes,
2: it's got a great history. Oh, man.
3: It's like, because, you know, what a compliment to a book when your title spawns its own popular culture, politi- mm. political culture phrase. Mm-hmm. You know? um, but, you know, he originally wanted to call it Catch 18. yes. You read about this. So, Catch Twenty Two yep. has no significance. Catch Eighteen doesn't either. But around the time he was going to publish it, there was a book called Mila Eighteen that came out. Right, and, and that Mila, was
2: also about World War Two.
3: Right, and so, and the number eighteen um, has a special meaning in Judaism. Like in Judaism, you know, numbers are assigned uh, words. So, eighteen means alive. And so mm-hmm. the publisher said you can't call it Catch 18. And so he was going to call it Catch 11, Heller. Right. But then Ocean's 11 came out. <laughs> so he the was film. like, yeah. yeah. So he was like, Maybe we'll call it Catch 17. But then Stalag 18 came out.
2: Stalag 17.
3: Stalag 17, right. Sorry. Yeah. And then um, he was going to call it Catch 14. But then the publisher didn't think it was a funny number. <laughs> I
2: know. That's the best one. Yeah. Not a funny number. What do you think? (laughs) I mean, okay, so let me say some numbers and you tell me if you think they're funny. Okay. Uh, Uh Two. (laughs) No. Ten. (laughs) Ten. Not really. 106. Sort of. (laughs) (laughs) 14. No. (laughs) (laughs) 22. Yes. Yeah.
1: I, mean, I, I, mean, I
2: know it's weird because you go through and you think no number is really funny, but then when you kind of start really thinking about Catch fourteen and Catch twenty two, yeah, you do think Catch fourteen just doesn't quite cut it. I don't know if it's not a funny number, but it definitely doesn't sound as good as
3: Catch twenty two. Yeah, I mean, and it. So the publisher. Ultimately, decided it sounded most melodic. Catch twenty two. Yeah, and I think it has to do. Let's see, one, two, three, three syllables. Catch twenty two, rather than. Yeah, I guess it, the repetition also that the, the, the twenty two sounds cool. Um,
2: well, and that fits the book. You know the the double two because the the meaning of catch twenty two is this logical paradox or double bind. Yeah, and everything is reversing back on itself, and um, and it's a palindrome.
3: Right. So I, you know, I was, you know, I was telling my daughter that what a catch twenty, what the catch twenty two is in the book, which is the main character John Usarian flies these bomber missions over Germany, drops bombs, and they used to fly very high, but they were missing their targets, so they were told to fly a little lower, and they were hitting some of their targets. And then they were to full, told to fly very low and they were hitting all their targets, but a lot of the ship's planes were being shot down. So they were afraid that when they woke up in the morning, their name would be up on the board that they would have to fly a mission. Mm -hmm. So Yossarian figured out that if you were mentally unfit to fly, you you wouldn't have to fly. But if only a, a, a rational person would pretend to be mentally unfit, so, he didn't have to fly right so the doctors would dismiss anyone who claimed to be mentally unfit <laughs> right.
2: because they knew that was actually the same thing to do
3: <laughs> yeah so <laughs> the other thing I love about the book is that it comes up often there's a right so youarian thinks the catch-22 is a military term and so he's now he, he's I think he's in France talking to an old woman and the old woman is recounting the violence committed by soldiers mm-hmm And she says, Catch-22 says they have a right to do anything we can't stop them from doing. And Yasserian goes, what the hell are you talking about? How how did you know it was (laughs) Catch-22? Who the hell told you it was Catch-22? And the woman says, the men with the hard hats and clubs, the women were crying. Did we do anything wrong? The men said no and pushed them out the door. We asked, why are you chasing us out? And the men said, Catch-22. All they kept saying was, Catch-22, Catch-22. What does this mean Catch 22? What is Catch 22? And Yossarian says, "Didn't they show it to you? Didn't they make didn't you even make them read it to you what it was?" And the old woman goes, "They don't have to show us Catch 22. The law says they don't have to." And Yossarian goes, "What law says they don't have to?" And the old woman responds, "Catch 22." <laughs>
2: Yeah and uh, <laughs> I love that Catch 22 they talk about different clauses of Catch 22 it's all it makes you uh it it just begs the question of what are the other what are the first catches what are the first 21 catches you know and right. what's what, what book is this all written down in and um and then there's all kinds of other uh not just related to Catch 22 but but moments of circular reasoning in the novel yeah. Um, like, uh, the Texan turned out to be good natured, generous, and likable in three days. No one could stand him.
1: <laughs>
2: and, uh, the case against Clevenger was open and shut. The only thing missing was something to charge him with.
3: <laughs> yeah. There's a scene where, it, um, major, major, yeah. what a great name, major, major, major asks someone, um, why did you sign the acknowledgement? And the guy's like, I never had a chance to sign it. And he's like, That's no excuse. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, great pick! Everybody should read Catch Twenty Two if they haven't already. It makes me a little nostalgic for that generation of novelists who went, who served in World War II. You know, yeah. the, there was there was just a lot of, uh, you know, it was it was so widespread for men of that age to volunteer for the service. And so there just was a lot of novelists who came out during that period or just other cultural figures to composers and people who had spent some time in the army. And, uh, we sort of haven't had that for a while. We have a few books that are written by men in uniform or women in uniform, but not, not quite the same way as that world war two generation. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to take my pick. Uh, which is 1984 by George mm. Orwell. Right. Yeah. And I think it's pretty famous that he wrote the book in 1948 and reversed the numbers. And I remember in 1983, I was in junior high school and people were a little freaked out about 1984 being around the corner as if <laughs> suddenly, you know, on January, it was like Y2K on January first 1984 maybe we'd have this new maybe that was the day the Soviets were gonna take over and install the cameras and and introduce us all to big brother uh, I also uh, remember people at the time used to say that Orwell the, the dystopia of 1984 couldn't happen because of Orwell's novel that it had made it impossible and I I used to think that, and now I'm not so sure. Now I think maybe it was just too soon. I mean, certainly it wouldn't look exactly like it does in 1984, but you do wonder with all the cameras we have everywhere and big data, you wonder if we have were maybe just it's too soon to say whether or not 1984 could ever come true.
3: You know, I didn't have 1984 on my list because I have to confess I never finished it. Oh. <laughs> it, it was one of these... It was one of these books where I think the <laughs> hype had, uh, I don't know. Yeah,
2: right? it probably helped that I read it in junior high or or high yeah. school. I think I told the story about how I, when we did our literary endings book, mm-hmm. that uh, great literary endings that I had ruined it for myself. But
3: um, <laughs> oh, yeah.
2: I did know, I do know that I read it pretty early. Uh, the other thing about it as a book that has a number in the title is it's the only book that I had in my list, at least in my top 10 that's only a number yeah that the title doesn't have any words at all it's just the number so i gave i gave it a few extra bonus points for that
3: it it might be one of the first um books that had a number or a year in the title i i, I mean i'm it's i'm sure it influenced the mirakami novel title iq eight 4 mm, yeah right um which I've, i haven't read so i didn't put that on my list I, yeah the books i didn't read i didn't put them on the list like tale of two cities i've never read mm. um but yeah i feel like 1984 i mean back then and i don't think it was people were did not have very kind of catchy or uh innovative titles and maybe 1984 was one of the first
1: mm.
2: yeah that could be Uh, Although I think there was one that was earlier, which I'm not going to say because I thought you might pick it, but apparently you're not going to. But anyway, why don't you go, why don't you take your second pick?
3: Okay. With the second one, I went with uh, Twelfth Night. Ooh. Okay. I that that
2: is an honorable mention.
3: Or What You Will, which (laughs) is apparently Shakespeare's only play with an alternate title. Ah, okay. Is that right? Yeah, Yeah, that's (laughs) it. I guess
2: so. Okay. What you will, is that a pun on his name? I guess so. Seems like whenever there's a will, we have to think that he maybe was also referring to his own first name.
3: Yeah, I mean, so Twelfth Night refers to the twelfth day after Christmas, Mm -hmm. which is, I mean, it's a holiday that used to be celebrated. I don't think people pay too much attention. Although in Italy, I feel like maybe there is some kind of extended Christmas celebration Um but anyway, the 12th day after Christmas, which is a holiday, which was a holiday known as Epiphany, which marked the arrival of three wise men to mm-hmm. deliver their gifts to baby Jesus, who had been alive for 12 days. And, um, it, it's post it used to be a pretty wild party. Yeah. Um, I was reading that not only was there fear and drinking, there were sporting events. There was something called bear baiting, where they would tie a bear to a, a chain of bales. <laughs> Bear to a pole <laughs> and set dogs upon the bear Oof. until they mauled the bear to death. Hey. Yeah. And the kids would circle around and laugh. And <laughs> wow. They would sometimes appoint young boys as kings for the day, hmm. called Lords of Misrule. Yeah. That's and in they, the
2: play, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. right.
3: That's, and they would decree, you know, certain laws. And So I think Twelfth Night is that backdrop is a perfect setting for a Shakespeare play where things are just strangely happening.
1: Oh, yeah.
3: I've seen productions of Twelfth Night, and I'm always struck by how much Sir Andrew Agachik and Sir Toby Belch just stand out, just (laughs) their craziness.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I like the way it ties it into a holiday. It's kind of like Fat Tuesday or... You know, these other religious ceremonies, Mardi Gras, where everyone knows that things get a little crazy during this revelry and it's sort of outside of society.
3: Yeah, so those my first two picks were basically picks where the title had real meaning and and, Mm. and my latter picks are where the title (laughs) doesn't.
2: (laughs) Now, I'm a little surprised you said you were going to take all my picks and then you took a Shakespeare comedy, which I had... I had named in in our episode on books you don't need to read as something you don't need to actually read.
3: So, oh, but I thought this was the one exception.
2: Oh, to the <laughs> uh, was it? Maybe. Yeah, yeah, it was. That's right. Okay, I am going to take uh, since you took my number two. I'm going to go drop down to the next pick on my board, which you've already previewed, which is A Tale of Two Cities oh, okay. by Charles Dickens. I think that's his best title. I took a look at all of his titles. The only one that I think might be as poetic is Great Expectations. Uh, But the other, you know, his title is just The Pickwick Papers, Oliver Twist, Nicholas Nickleby. He has so many that are just a name, which he's very good at. Barnaby Rudge, Martin Chuzzlewit, David Copperfield. They're unforgettable names, but that's basically the whole uh, title, which is um, not all that interesting. Bleak House is a pretty good title, too, I guess. I love the idea of the two cities being London and Paris and the topic of, you know, here were these two countries that were so close to one another geographically and their system of government and culture is very similar. And then suddenly one has a violent revolution and the other one doesn't and why? Why does one uh, overthrow their king and the other one still morphs in some ways, but but still maintains the monarchy? And what does that mean? Um, And I'm also kind of drawn to the idea that Dickens always wrote about two cities, one for the rich and the fortunate and one for the poor and unlucky. In some ways, you could say that all of his books are about about two cities, but it's just a, a provocative title. It's a great book. It's one of his best titles. And then I also wanted to defend him a little bit because Borges had, uh, has this quote about a tale of two cities. And he said, uh, Dickens lived in London in his book, a tale of two cities based on the French revolution. We see that he really could not write a tale of two cities. He was a resident of just one city, London. (laughs) And I thought, well, that's maybe that's true, but maybe that's not quite so fair. So I'll, uh, I'll take Dickens to help rehabilitate his image.
3: Boy, when did you read Tale of Two Cities? I feel like that's, is that a high school college book? Yep.
2: That's, okay. uh, I think, I, you know, I have a an aunt who was a librarian and she gave me, she would always give me books, but they would always be books that were good for you. You know, like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein or it'd be the, Kinds of things that a kid might like, but also would be very educational. One of the books she gave me was The Tale of Two Cities, and I ended up reading my way through all of everything else, The Great Brain and everything, and then reading uh, The Tale of Two Cities. Okay, so we're up
3: to number three. So with three, I went with um, uh, uh, The Crying of Lot 49, which, which I think is just a cool title. Yep feel like when people ask me what I was and I've read it a number of times people ask me what I'm re- what I was reading and I said crying a 49 they would say like what does that mean what is that right and, and I would I would always say like hey, you, you've got to read it because it actually is the title of it is revealed in the last line oh yeah so <laughs> if, you, if you haven't read it I, I shouldn't tell you what it is but it's yep. It's Thomas Pynchon's second novel, the mm-hmm. first novel, V. Now, I've tried to read V. I've tried to read Gravity's Rainbow. I've tried to read Vineland, and I've never progressed mm. in those three books. And so Crying a Lot 49 is, is his shortest work. Yep. And Most you know, accessible. Yeah, and I feel like it captures a lot of what um he tries to do in his novels, which is this sort of, mystery that may or may not be a conspiracy, which may or may not just be in the main character's head. Mm. So, uh-huh. but it, it, it's got a great plot. I don't want to give too much away. Basically the main character, all of his characters have funny symbolic names. Her name is Edipa Moss and she's a housewife gets contacted uh, by a former lover who um, left a will and wants her to be the executrix. Mm-hmm. And she finds out that um, the will was altered through... Um, God, I forget the legal term now. What's the addendum? Is this codicil? Yes, a codicil, right. <laughs> a secret codicil um, written by a former child movie star known as Baby Igor. Uh. Right. Who's, who's grown up to become this mysterious figure who may or may not have started um, a company which goes far back, ties go far back to um, a rival postal system to term in taxes, which is the postal system in Holland and Germany. Mm. So there's this symbol, this drawing of a muted horn, and she's trying to figure out the mystery of it, and I don't want to give too much away, but it's it's just a lot of fun to read. I mean, mm. you know, there's like LSD trips. There's a, there's one of the best lawyers depicted in the literature. I mean, I haven't read William Gaddis because I, I heard William Gaddis has great lawyers frolic of his own, but the lawyer in *Crying a Lot* forty nine is hilarious.
1: Mm.
2: You don't need to give it away, but forty nine is. It's a very specific number. There's something about the numbers when they're specific and they're not, you know, yeah. ten or one hundred. But it makes um, the precision of it makes it kind of mysterious and uh, makes people want it, to. It it's inviting.
3: Yeah, I mean, that I came across a lot of titles that had a round number like a mm-hmm. hundred or a thousand, right? And I think when. When those titles first came out, they seemed more symbolic than they do now. Mm-hmm. Now they just seem, you know, kind of like, I don't know, they're, they they're kind of meld into the woodwork.
2: Yeah. And a lot of them, I mean, I know I took Tale of Two Cities, but a lot of them will just have three. Yeah. Like three is used a lot. Um, okay. Good pick. I am going to take my next pick, which is... Speaking of round numbers, which is one hundred years of solitude, right? The yeah, Marquez that, that novel
3: a, that was on my list.
2: Yeah, it's a beautiful, uh, poetic title. The one hundred years, and then the idea that there's solitude, which is such an interesting emotion that would be running through a, a whole century. It's very rich with possibility, but also sadness and complexity. It's the story, if people haven't encountered it, it's seven generations compressed into time. But also, it's really not necessarily 100 years. It's not like you, you know, it's not a book where you'd have 100 chapters and each chapter would be a year or you'd be marching through in any kind of organized way. There's a kind of drifting, eternal feel to the book. Time is much more fluid than you would think from a book with uh, such a a definite period of time, right in the title.
3: It it it's a great title because also because it you know the idea of covering a hundred years in a book, you know, is so ambitious. Mm-hmm. And yep, you know, I really love that title. I think yes, yeah.
2: I also like the title "Love in the Time of Cholera," which is another yeah
3: really interesting
2: title. He's got a way of uh with those two titles anyway of kind of turning things around, you know, to make you, make you really think just in the, just, just the title itself is very pregnant with meaning.
3: Yeah. I, I, I recommend that book if people haven't read anything by Garcia Marquez as a first book.
2: Okay. So number four.
3: So number four, I went with uh, a title that people have tried to figure out what it means, but mm. I think it has no meaning. It's a, uh, 2666,
2: 2666. Oh,
3: Bolaño. Yeah, who was uh, a, a poet from Chile who lived in, you know, France, Spain, and died in 2003. And a number of his works, I think a lot of his poetry was published while he was alive, but his novels have mostly been published posthumously. Mm-hmm. And um, th- this one, which clocks in, a, close to, you know, a thousand pages. Um, he did title it before he died, but people are trying to figure out what this title means, and I'm not sure. <laughs> they, I'm not don't sure we... <laughs> they don't
1: know? They don't know?
3: Nobody should... knows? No, not really. <laughs> what? what? Yeah. Are
2: there possibilities?
3: Well, I think a lot of people think that the 666. Yeah. Um, Satanic. Yeah, that it's the number of the beast and, um, the violent, the book is very violent. It's, um, Mm. it, it, it it has a great, it has these great shifts. It's actually five books. Um, it, it starts with a number of academics who will become obsessed with this German novelist, Benno von at Chimboldo, And they meet at this conference and they're all talking about his literature and um, how strange it is. And they become involved in a relationship with each other, these four academics. And they hear that he's actually not dead, he's alive in Mexico. Mm. Mm. And so three of the four head down to Mexico, to Sonora, which is where the drug cartels operate. Mm-hmm. And it has this incredible shift to the violence in Mexico, and you know the, i don't want to give it away there the are a number of shifts like that, and I guess the the beauty of the book is that there are there are lots of passages where it's almost like diary, but then mm-hmm. there's this there's this cloud of evil or yeah. something like hanging over them. I was going to read this section just to give people a flavor of just how plain and um, seductive at the same time it could be. Um, This character says, No matter what time he got back to the hotel, Pelletier was always awake, reading a book, waiting for him. This was his way of reaffirming their friendship, Espinoza thought. It was also possible that Pelletier couldn't sleep, and his insomnia drove him to read in an empty hotel lounges until dawn. Sometimes Pelletier was by the pool in a sweater or wrapped in a towel, sipping whiskey. Other times, Espinosa found him in a room presided over by an enormous border landscape, painted, one could see instantly, by someone who had never been to the border. There There was more wishfulness than realism in the industriousness and the harmony of the landscape. The waiters, even those on the night shift, made sure Pelletier lacked for nothing because he was a decent tipper. When Espinosa got in, the two men spent a few minutes exchanging brief, pleasant remarks. Sometimes, before he went to look for Pelletier in the hotel's empty lounges, he would go check his email in hope of finding letters from Europe from Hellfield or Borchmayer that might shed some light on Archim Boldo's whereabouts. Then he would go go in in search of Pelletier, and later both of them would head silently up to their rooms. Hmm. So you have passages like that, and then you Mm -hmm. have this violence that intrudes and it you know um i've read a lot of long books mm-hmm. like your your face tomorrow or proust but i think this this book is the most is the book that it, where you feel most immersed
1: mm. wow
3: yeah you, you 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 are what i what i how i described it to someone is you are not thinking when you're reading this book wow. you're nev, you're never thinking like oh what's going to happen next Who's yeah how does this fit in? You're just in the book.
2: You just give uh, yourself over.
3: And it's just, I mean, I read it so quickly and it, it it's just a brilliant book. I mean, you can tell he's a poet. He's very in control of the rhythm.
1: Mm. Yeah.
2: So, well, the translator must be good too. Yeah. So, okay. Well, I'm intrigued. I'm going to have to pick that up. I've been meaning to, uh, Reed Bolaño, I know he's one of your favorites and I've always had him on my list for a while. I picked up a volume of his poetry uh-huh. the other day. So I'm kind of uh, picking my way through that, but it sounds like 2666 must be, uh, yeah. must be the right one. And I have a feeling I'm going to get to page 37 and see that there's some obvious explanation for <laughs> what it will be like. He bought a house at 2666, uh, <laughs> Main Street, you know, <laughs> something that you just blew past.
3: <laughs> you know, the book has a, has a, has an epigraph by Bottle Air, which I love. It's an oasis of horror in a desert of boredom. Charles <laughs> <laughs> <knows> Bottle Air. <laughs> so, yeah, read 2666. Okay.
2: So, I am going to skip over a couple of things that were on my list because in looking at my list, I've I think there are a couple that are more interesting further down. So I'm making a draft day decision here to uh, <laughs> take from lower on the board. So I'm going to take uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea.
3: Oh, you know, I, I, I've never read that, but I always love that title.
2: That's a great title.
3: I used it's, to think, is that possible? Yeah, that-
2: that's the thing. And when I was a kid, it just uh, I was just staggered by it. You know, what is a league, how, exactly how big is a league, and how deep is 20,000 leagues? It just sounds so deep. There's something so mysterious about 20,000 leagues under the sea, and which fits right in with what the book is about, um, although I've it was so long ago that I've read it that I can barely remember it now. 20,000, I thought, might be the biggest number that either of us would pick, Um Unless you get a book that's got like a million or infinit- uh, infinity or something in the title, I don't think uh, there's a an exact number that's bigger than 20,000 in a great book. Uh, I did read, uh, speaking of big numbers, I did like a title uh, by in a nonfiction book by V.S. Naipaul, and it was India, A Million Mutinies Now, mm. which uh, was very... Interesting, and I read the book when I was in India, and it really uh, shaped the way that I was looking at the things around me. And it was uh, that was a good title with a big number, but uh, I'm going to go with Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea.
3: Yeah, you know, I've never read it, and I love I love that kind of fiction, adventure mm-hmm. fiction. And yeah, I'm surprised I never read it. So
2: yeah, well, maybe uh, maybe put it on your list. Okay, <laughs> okay. you're down to your last pick.
3: So, I <laughs> I wanted to pick Fahrenheit 451 because I <laughs> I think that that is like one of the coolest titles, you know, the, the temperature at which paper burns. And yes. Just...
2: Okay. So, I was going to take that for my last pick. Uh-huh. But well, since... well, okay.
3: So, you can take it because well, I, no, since, I, I, didn't, I didn't. Since you it.
2: brought it up, you already stole my thunder. So, since you brought it up, let's talk about it briefly. So, I actually, <laughs> I've never read it, but I always thought that. Uh-huh. Uh, I always thought that it was probably, you know, I knew it was science fiction or that Bradbury was a science fiction writer. And I always thought that it was probably the temperature on Mars or the temperature (laughs) of, you know, the outside of some spaceship when the sun is, when it's like, that's where the spaceship melted or something when it got too close to the sun or I don't know, whatever. But the idea that it's a dystopian book written during the McCarthy era, and it was, Four, Fahrenheit 451 is the temperature at which paper catches fire and burns, and it's about book burning. Makes me really want to read the book.
3: It's a great book. I mean i read I read the book. I, I saw the Truffaut film. Um, mm. It it it's. I think it is one of the books that, like Brave New World, was. Mm-hmm heavily influenced by 1984 but then did something else I mean I, well mm. actually sorry it was heavily influenced by brave new world and 1984 because brave new world right. comes before 1984 but yeah um, but it does something different you know there there are great details like uh, books are uh, against the law so there are societies where each person is assigned a book to memorize mm. uh, and there's you know the firemen put out uh, burn books. They they set fire to libraries. Mm. You know, which is so clever because when when you're a kid, when you hear someone's a fireman, right? You think they set fires, <laughs> right? Like it just right. like why aren't they called like the the watermen? Right, right. Why aren't they like yeah? You know, <laughs> so, but in 19, in uh, Fahrenheit 451, they go around setting fires. Like right. if you have a book collection, <laughs> they said fire your ass. might show up. <laughs> yeah. And so it's, it, and I, I just love the way it, it, it probably inspired a lot of writers because it, it, it's such a good idea mm-hmm. and to make it into a story. Cause I think a lot of ideas that become stories just stay kind of like one trick ponies. they they just stay yeah. ideas. Yeah. Um, you know, interesting. Mel Gibson acquired the rights uh, to the film, uh, the film rights, but he abandoned them because he couldn't really think of an idea, he could f- think of a way to do it, but Showtime is now going to make, uh, I think, a miniseries of it, it's supposed mm. to come out in the next year.
1: Wow,
2: okay, you know? good. Well, it's, it's a very evocative title, and I like that, if we're just looking at the numbers here, I like that it's not a round number, and it's a very almost hyper-specific number, but it's linked to something actual. It's not just something invented and chosen, but it actually has a, a grounding in science that this is the, yeah. the the temperature. So, okay. Well, I didn't mean to uh, distract you from your number five pick. So what do you have?
3: All right. So I went with, like, the most, the the, the title that meant the least, but I love <laughs> and I just want to talk about, which is... Uh, John Berryman 77 Dream Songs. Ah, yeah. So, okay.
2: Well, this is interesting because this is a specific genre of title, or I don't know if genre is the right word, species of title that we have not chosen, which is accounting title. Yeah. You know, We're, nine right. stories, Salinger's nine stories, or Bartholomew's 40 stories. Um, I had uh, 20 love poems and a song of despair by Neruda oh, right. or, you know, things where it just counts for you what's going to be inside.
3: I just love his voice. Um, 77 Dream Songs is about this man, Henry, and his making his way through America. Mm. Um, oh,
2: wait, wait, wait. I might be totally wrong then. I thought 77 Dream Songs was going to be that there were 77 of them.
3: Yeah, no, they are. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, they, they, yeah, they're 77 uh, poems, but they're all about Henry.
2: I, I see. Got yeah, it.
3: and his story is, you know, very sad. He, his father, he grew up in Oklahoma, John Berryman, so he's, he's a, he's a modern poet, very good friend of Robert Lowell, mm-hmm. um, uh, and knew Marian Moore and you know Wallace Stevens and everyone else, um when he was a boy, his father killed himself in his bedroom.
2: Oh. Yeah. In the boy's bedroom. Yeah. And oh, so, oh,
1: so the, sad.
3: The mother remarried and the, the husband was kind of a weird character and the, the husband made the mother change her name from Martha to Jill. Mm. Which is just bizarre. Um, and then... Um, That's so strange. I've never heard of that before. In fact, I was thinking, like, what a great What a great, it's almost, it's not fictional because it's just too unreal, you know? Yeah,
2: it's like a Hitchcock, it's like Vertigo, but even a detail that Hitchcock didn't even have.
3: So, and then he committed, John Berryman uh, drowned himself, committed suicide. And Mm. then when his mother found out, she called Robert Lowell because they were best friends. And she started reciting some of her son's poetry. Uh, where there was drowning scenes, mm. and Lowell was so weirded out. He, I mean, people know Lowell's history. He, he was, yeah. he could be very unstable, and he was saying, you know, to be confronted by his friend's mother reciting his poetry after being told he was dead. It was just, mm. wow. Um, but I, I wanted, on a happier note, I wanted to read one of the, um, poems. It's very short, and I, I think it kind of, sums up his high-low style that a lot of people love. Um, this is a uh, Dream Song, set 46. so It's, I am outside. Incredible panic rules. This reminded me a little bit of Trump America, by the way. Uh, people are blowing and beating one each other without mercy. Drinks are boiling. Ice drinks are boiling. The worse anyone feels, the worse treated he is. Fools elect fools. A harmless man at an intersection said under his breath, Christ! That word so spoken affected the vision of when they trod to work the next day, the shopkeepers who went and were fitted for glasses. Enjoyed they, then, an appearance of love and law. Millennia whiffed and waft, one-one, ere, er their glasses were taken from them, and they saw. Man has undertaken the top job of all, sans fin, good luck. I myself walked to the funeral of tenderness, followed other deaths, among the last, like the memory of a lovely fuck was "Do it this. I don't know Latin, so I don't know what that means at the end, but you can hear <laughs> you can hear the 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 transitions he makes from you know everyday speech right, and, and his humor, you know uh, uh, I really love like ice drinks are boiling. the worse anyone feels, the worse treated he is. Mm, yeah, so,
2: okay. Good pick. Now, I've had to cross quite a few out. I had to cross out my Fahrenheit 451 and uh okay, so I'll take this one. This is another type of uh this is another type of number I don't think we've taken yet, which is the um the word that's actually a number. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take uh Agatha Christie's book and then there were none. Oh yeah That's which great. is it's a great title it's mysterious it's haunting it's got that sense of doom built into it it's really the classic one by one murder story where people are disappearing one by one for you know out of some house or some some get together and it, it's a it's a perfect title for that and then there were none the original title was actually Ten Little N-Words. I'm not going to say the actual title, which is from uh, the nursery rhyme in America. It was Ten Little Indians. I guess in England, it was uh, Mm -hmm. the Ten Little N-Words. And so that made me think that the switch from that original title to And Then There Were None has got to be the best improvement in a title that's ever been made. (laughs) Um, so let me run through, I should have done this before I, I made my pick, but let me run through some not chosen's and some honorable mentions. The 39 steps uh, was pretty high for me, especially because of the Hitchcock movie, 2001, a space odyssey, which, uh, I've never actually read the book and I didn't want to take another year after 1984. It's a, a film I like a lot though. 1919 by Dos Passos. I thought that was, I think that came before 1984. It was written before it. So I was a little surprised that that hadn't come into your mind when you were talking about 1984 being the first year book.
3: Oh yeah. Right. Uh,
2: you're a dose. You're one of doses guys,
3: right? Yeah. I like the uh, <laughs> USA trilogy a lot. So
2: other, another type of number we didn't take Richard the Third and Henry V. Um, I thought you might take Slaughterhouse 5. By
3: yeah, you know I, I I had that on my list and I did. I did want to read a little quote from it because I thought it was hilarious and as you know, you and I would have a personal connection to it, but he, if you can indulge me, listen to this. I think about my education sometimes. I went to the University of Chicago after a while after the Second World War. I was a student in the Department of Anthropology. At that time, they were teaching that there was absolutely no difference between anybody. They may be teaching that still. Another thing they taught was that nobody was ridiculous or bad or disgusting. Shortly (laughs) before my father died, he said to me, You know, you never wrote a story with a villain in it. I told him that was one of the things I had learned in college after the war. <laughs> it's such a snappy book. I actually yeah. I actually read that in my 30s and I loved it. I oh, people, really? Yeah, I, I know thought, people read it much earlier.
2: Yeah, I thought, you know, I read it in college but I, it was when I was doing my year abroad in Italy. So otherwise, I probably would have given you my copy.
3: Yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. I,
2: um other ones, The Life of Pi would be an interesting pick. Uh The Three Musketeers. Was a, a a pretty classic novel, although three is used a lot in titles, and I didn't think I could really justify it. One fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. A lot of people point to as a, a great book with numbers in the title. I'm not. I didn't really want to go there. Um, <laughs> I thought you might take less than zero.
3: Uh, yeah, you know, I I read it so long ago, so that was one of those ones where I was like, I don't really remember it. I mean, I I remember Rules of Attraction more just because of the sex scenes when I think of Brett Easton Ellis. And
2: At Swim, Two Birds, which is a book that comes up on a lot of lists that I've never read. I don't know if you've read it. Mm -hmm. Um, And Twelve Years a Slave is a more recent uh, book that also I haven't read, so I didn't want to take it. The Third Man, I just take too many times for lists like these. And Oh, The Sign of Four by uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, one of the, I think it's either the first or second Sherlock Holmes uh, title. And that's got kind of a nice intrigue as well. There's something about mystery. There's a lot of mysteries and thrillers that use numbers and it, um, you know, it kind of, uh, they can be very evocative and um, set up a mystery just by giving something a number like there's, like, why would there be so many of those? You know, what would the others be? (laughs) <laughs> um, so often used
3: I think that was it for me I started to admire titles with numbers yeah. and recognizing the difficulty and I think that it, t- titles are difficult to come up with but titles with numbers especially and just you know like a friend of mine who just published her book she was saying that more and more publishers are uh, putting into their contracts the author's contracts that they have the final say on the title oh wow because they find that um, uh, writers have titles that are not marketable; they're mm. too—they're they're not catchy.
1: Mm. So right.
3: I wonder if we see less titles with numbers, except for round numbers, because round numbers seem to resonate very, very easily with people.
2: Yeah, or something—you yeah. know—something you know, something obviously catchy. You know, my ninth lover.
3: You know, something like that. Yeah like 50 Shades of Grey. Yeah, 50 Shades of Grey.
2: That was uh, not even... I thought about that one and then I forgot to write it down on my honorable mention list. Let's end things there. Thank you. You've been a big part of the podcast, obviously, for these 100 episodes. We're having a little celebration here and I can't imagine uh, having gotten this far without the many fine episodes we've had with uh, Mike Palindrome and the all the cachet he brings as the president of the Literature Supporters Club. Thanks, Jack. Okay, there we go. Numbers, lots of numbers. I hope you enjoyed it. As I mentioned before, I have some vacation coming up, some scheduled vacation. I'll be in Seattle, hiking and ziplining and ferrying and swimming my way through the Pacific Northwest. And eating and drinking coffee. I love it up there. This vacation is much needed. But we will be back after the break with some more literature. I'm working on some reader suggestions. Some really great ideas for episodes have been coming in and will be coming up and I'm lining up some more wonderful guests I meant it earlier when I said this show was really about you more than me without listeners there wouldn't be a show There might have been a, a couple of episodes but there wouldn't have been 10 let alone 100 and I wouldn't be launching into the next 100 either so give yourself the yourself <laughs> give yourselves a pat on the ears on the ears, the back I was thinking that your ears deserve all the credit, but we'll stick with the phrase. And your mind. Can you give yourself a pat on the mind? I'm looking forward to more time together. And I hope you are too. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening to the first 100 episodes. And we'll see you for the next 100.